Section 30 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Carney. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 30. The Chenchi, Part 2. This happened in the early part of the reign of Clement VIII, famed for his justice. The three youths resolved to apply to him, to grant them an allowance after their father's immense income. They consequently repaired to Frascati, where the Pope was building the beautiful Aldo Brandini villa, and stated their case. The Pope admitted the justice of their claims, and ordered Francesco to allow each of them two thousand crowns a year. He endeavored by every possible means to evade this decree, but the Pope's orders were too stringent to be disobeyed. About this period he was for the third time imprisoned for infamous crimes. His three sons then again petitioned the Pope, alleging that their father dishonored the family name, and praying that the extreme rigor of the law, a capital sentence, should be enforced in his case. The Pope pronounced this conduct unnatural and odious, and drove them with ignominy from his presence. As for Francesco, he escaped, as on the two previous occasions, by the payment of a large sum of money. It will be readily understood that his son's conduct on this occasion did not improve their father's disposition towards them, but as their independent pensions enabled them to keep out of his way, his rage fell with all the greater intensity on his two unhappy daughters. Their situation soon became so intolerable that the elder, contriving to elude the close supervision under which she was kept, forwarded to the Pope a petition relating the cruel treatment to which she was subjected, and praying His Holiness either to give her in marriage or place her in a convent. Clement VIII took pity on her, compelled Francesco Cenci to give her a dowry of sixty thousand crowns, and married her to Carlo Gabrielli of a noble family of Gubbio. Francesco was driven nearly frantic with rage when he saw this victim released from his clutches. About the same time, death relieved him from two other encumbrances. His sons Rocco and Cristoforo were killed within a year of each other, the latter by a bungling medical practitioner whose name is unknown, the former by a Paolo Corso di Massa, in the streets of Rome. This came as a relief to Francesco, whose avarice pursued his sons even after their death, for he intimated to the priest that he would not spend a farthing on funeral services. They were accordingly borne to the pauper's graves, which he had caused to be prepared for them, and when he saw them both interred, he cried out that he was well rid of such good-for-nothing children, but that he should be perfectly happy only when the remaining five were buried with the first two, and that when he had got rid of the last, he himself would burn down his palace as a bonfire to celebrate the event. But Francesco took every precaution against his second daughter, Beatrice Cenci, following the example of her elder sister. She was then a child of twelve or thirteen years of age, beautiful and innocent as an angel, her long fair hair, a beauty seen so rarely in Italy, that Raffaele, believing it divine, has appropriated it to all his Madonnas, 
curtained a lovely forehead, and fell in flowing locks over her shoulders. Her azure eyes bore a heavenly expression. She was of middle height, exquisitely proportioned, and during the rare moments when a gleam of happiness allowed her natural character to display itself, she was lively, joyous, and sympathetic, but at the same time evinced a firm and decided disposition. To make sure of her custody, Francesco kept her shut up in a remote apartment of his palace, the key of which he kept in his own possession. There her unnatural and inflexible jailer daily brought her some food. Up to the age of thirteen, which he had now reached, he had behaved to her with the most extreme harshness and severity, but now, to poor Beatrice's great astonishment, he all at once became gentle and even tender. Beatrice was a no child no longer, her beauty expanded like a flower, and Francesco, a stranger to no crime, however heinous, had marked her for his own. Brought up as she had been, uneducated, deprived of all society, even that of her stepmother, Beatrice knew not good from evil. Her ruin was comparatively easy to com compass. Yet Francesco, to accomplish his diabolical purpose, employed all the means at his command. Every night she was awakened by a concert of music which seemed to come from paradise. When she mentioned this to her father, he left her in this belief, adding that, if she proved gentle and obedient, she would be rewarded by heavenly sights, as well as heavenly sounds. One night it came to pass that as the young girl was reposing, her head supported on her elbow, and listening to a delightful harmony, the chamber door suddenly opened, and from the darkness of her own room she beheld a suite of apartments brilliantly illuminated and sensuous with perfumes, beautiful youths and girls half-clad, such as she had seen in the pictures of Guido and Raffaele, moved to and fro in these apartments, seeming full of joy and happiness. These were the ministers to the pleasures of Francesco, who, rich as a king, every night reveled in the orgies of Alexander, the wedding revels of Lucrezia, and the excesses of Tiberius at Capri. After an hour the door closed, and the seductive vision vanished leaving Beatrice full of trouble and amazement. The night following, the same apparition again presented itself, only on this occasion Francesco Cenci undressed, entered his daughter's room, and invited her to join the fete. Hardly knowing what she did, Beatrice yet perceived the impropriety of yielding to her father's wishes. She replied that, not seeing her stepmother, Lucrezia Petroni, among all these women, she dared not leave her bed to mix with persons who were unknown to her. Francesco threatened and prayed. But threats and prayer were of no avail. Beatrice wrapped herself up in the bedclothes and obstinately refused to obey. The next night she threw herself on her bed without undressing. At the accustomed hour, the door opened and the nocturnal spectacle reappeared. This time, Lucrezia Petroni was among the women who passed before Beatrice's door. Violence had compelled her to undergo this humiliation. Beatrice was too far off to see her blushes and her tears. Francesca pointed out to her stepmother, whom she had looked for in vain the previous evening. As she could no longer make any opposition, he led her, covered with blushes and confusion, into the middle of this orgy. 
Beatrice there saw incredible and infamous things. Nevertheless, she resisted a long time. An inward voice told her that this was horrible, but Francesco had the slow persistence of a demon. To these sights, calculated to stimulate her passions, he added heresies designed to warp her mind. He told her that the greatest saints venerated by the church were the issue of fathers and daughters, and in the bed, Beatrice committed a crime without even knowing it to be sin. His brutality then knew no bounds. He forced Lucrezia and Beatrice to share the same bed, threatening his wife to kill her if she disclosed to his daughter by a single word that there was anything odious in such an intercourse. So matters went on for about three years. At this time Francesca was obliged to make a journey and leave the women alone and free. The first thing Lucrezia did was to enlighten Beatrice on the infamy of the life they were leading. They then together prepared a memorial to the Pope, in which they laid before him a statement of all the blows and outrages they had suffered. But before leaving, Francesco Cenci had taken precautions. Every person about the Pope was in his pay, or hoped to be. The petition never reached his holiness, and the two poor women, remembering that Clement VIII had on a former occasion driven Giacomo and Cristoforo and the Rocco from his presence, thought they were included in the same prescription, and looked upon themselves as abandoned to their fate. When matters were in this state, Giacomo, taking advantage of his father's absence, came to pay them a visit with a friend of his, an abbey named Guerra. He was a young man of twenty-five or twenty-six, belonging to one of the most noble families in Rome, of a bold, resolute, and courageous character, and idolized by all the Roman ladies for his beauty. To classical features he added blue eyes, swimming in poetic sentiment. His hair was long and fair, with chestnut beard and eyebrows. Add to these attractions a highly educated mind, natural eloquence expressed by a musical and penetrating voice, and the reader may form some idea of Monsignor Abbey the Guerra. No sooner had he seen Beatrice than he fell in love with her. On her side she was not slow to return the sympathy of the young priest. The Council of Trent had not been held at that time, consequently ecclesiastics were not precluded from marriage. It was therefore decided that on the return of Francesco the Abbey Guerra should demand the hand of Beatrice from her father, and the women happy in the absence of their master, continued to live on, hoping for better things to come. End of section 30